Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. The passage that we're looking at this morning uh, is actually one of two, so you, you heard both of those passages read. We're going to be looking at the second one next week, but um, these two passages, verses 1 through 3 of um, chapter 13 and also 44 through 47 of chapter 12, they're both dropped into the book of Nehemiah as two chunks of kind of narrative extras, if you will, uh, that break Nehemiah's narrative in the section before and after them. And so, uh, just technically speaking, most people would read these or study them as part of the previous chapter in chapter 12, because of the way each of the paragraph opens. So if you look at verse 44 in chapter 12, and then the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 1, they both begin with, on that day, and then it goes into the blurb, the narrative, uh, which could refer to that day of dedication, which we talked about in chapter 12 last week, but it's not as certain as it appears. The, the language is a little bit more ambiguous, um, and it, it's, it's very possible that it could mean that on that day could mean at that time, or on one day these things happen. So one reason why we're going to give each of these some specific attention is because of how the author seems to very purposefully insert them here into the book of Nehemiah. Um, and, and they don't exactly fit in with the dedication of the walls um, or what Nehemiah is reporting as he returns back to Jerusalem after having been away, and that's going to start in verse 4, the end of chapter 13. So nevertheless, what, what you need to know is that these two passages, they carry the same spirit uh, in them that we've seen in the whole second half of the book of Nehemiah. So if you remember back, the walls are completed in chapter 6, and, and we see a, a reverence for God's word as they all gather together to, to, to read it and study it together. There's a thankfulness for God's faithfulness. This is all happening in chapter 8. Then there's a sincere heart of national mourning and repentance and prayer that happens in chapter 9. And then you have this renewal of Israel's covenant with God and with one another as a community in chapter 10. And then you have this willingness for all the people, or at least a lot of the people, to move back into this empty city in chapter 11. And then it's followed by this huge, joyful, loud celebration and the dedication of the walls in chapter 12, which is what we talked about last week. And what we're seeing in this uh, passage this morning is you see a a participation alongside and a supporting of those who ministered to the needs and the, the, the spiritual needs of the people of Israel. And what you see is Israel's trajectory of spiritual growth and maturity through the book. In, in many ways, the flow of the book, it outlines what's experienced in many of our lives today. And, and perhaps it's, it's happening in these cycles and so you, you see this hearing of God's word. You see this repenting and responding to God's word. You see a celebration in God's word, a delighting in God's word, but then maybe a waywardness or a stagnation and drifting from God's word or disobedience of God's word. But then you hear the cycle begin again with the hearing of God's word, which leads us back to repenting and responding to God's word and so on and so forth. Then in this journey, which is what spiritual formation is, it's, it's how we grow and how we mature as followers of Christ, I think in this journey come two things that God's people do when they reach a certain level of spiritual maturity, and that is God's people joyfully serve alongside and support God's people in God's house. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we jump into the text, please pray with me now. Father, we come to you because you have the answers. You are the truth. You've communicated this truth to us in your word, 
And so we pray, God, as we read this passage, these, these few verses um, that seem inconsequential, help us to see why you have included them in your word, why you're using them to reveal your heart and your will to us. Father, I pray that this time would be fruitful in the hearts of the hearers here in this room today. Lord, let this be uh, glorifying to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look again at those verses. We're going to focus in on 44 through 47. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open so you can see this for yourself, starting in verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in, those, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So what's happening is that God's people take a minute and they establish some of the administrative logistics regarding the handling of resources within God's temple. So they appoint people to oversee the temple's income, so the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes. And practically, this is really important because those resources would then be distributed to the priests and the Levites. So remember, these are people that have given up their inheritance in chapter 11. This is their dedicated profession. God has ordained them to work in this capacity uh, and, and, and while being supported financially by God's people. It's, it's a picture of his care and his provision for his people. But when David, the Israelite farmer, dropped off three tons of olives as his first fruits offering, or Leah, the Jewish seamstress, dropped off 100 yards of linen as her tithe, someone would have to deal with that. Someone would have to figure out how to divide that and distribute that. Maybe they take it to market. Maybe they trade for different commodities. Maybe they figure out a way to utilize that within the temple itself. This is not a simple task. And so you would read chapter 44, and possibly you would just kind of cruise on, not understanding the weight of the fact that there were those who were actually capable and skilled enough to do this, who were also willing to do this for their community. So not only were they capable, they were willing to do it. Like, what a, necess a necessary blessing. And it's a miraculous provision from, from God the provider, who, who's providing people uh, to steward the provisions that the provider has provided. There's like a, it, there's provision on multiple levels that's happening in this passage. And I want to take time this morning to drill down into this because I think that we as a church need to remember the complexity and the challenge of living together in a community as God's people. We see uh, this being especially true for Israel as they gathered literally tens of thousands of people to live together as God's holy city. And we, as a church, face some similar challenges, definitely not at the same scale here in Amherst, Massachusetts, but doing church with lots of people isn't easy. And let me define lots. This is lots. So anything more than maybe 10 to 12 people of a core team church plant in New England is starting to become lots of people. 
And so this isn't like a scientific number, but, but what we see is that as practical and logistical challenges grow, God's people rise to that challenge using their God-given gifts to, to make it work. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament, Old Kingdom concept, as if God was only interested in building a kingdom of people in the Old Testament, but then changes his mind in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, as the early church is, is exploding in number, and they're trying to distribute food and meet the needs of people, they run into some very practical problems. And the problem you see in Acts chapter 6 specifically is that the Hellenists, these are the Greek Jews, they would have converted to Christianity, were having their widows neglected in the distribution of food. So if you remember, this is in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so the gospel is being preached. The, the early church is growing, and they run into this very practical, logistical problem. And, and, and it has with it some very deep and heavy cultural and racial implications. As the gospel is transforming people, it's driving them toward compassionate care of the marginalized. The, the church is serving people in need as they should, but some of them get missed. Some people fall through the cracks here. The, the neglect could have been an honest mistake. It's possible that the Jews in the early church lacked relationship with the Greek Jews who were a part of a different community, and, and this would be a genuine oversight. They just didn't know who actually required food. But even if this was the case, the situation would require some really sensitive treatment and diffusing, especially if these Hellenists think that the Jews might be displaying some sort of prejudice or racism toward them in this distribution of food. It's a sticky situation, to say the very least. And do you remember how the early church leaders handled it? Look at the next verse, verse 2. This should be on your screens as well. And the twelve, this is the twelve apostles, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Okay, if you stop there, that sounds really harsh. Actually, if you stop there, it would be harsh. It would be the church leaders communicating that the only thing worth doing is preaching the word of God. And if that were the case, then maybe the best solution is to stop distributing food to so many people. Like, guys, this is starting to get out of hand. There are, are too many people. Let's focus on God's word. Let's scale things down. Let's eliminate this program because we are a church after all. We're not a restaurant, right? If they stop there, I think that that's what you might think, but that's not what happens. Look at the next verses, verse 3. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then look at what happens next. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this is an important moment. What you see is that the church did not scale back their efforts the church moved forward, and we have this historic moment where they established the office of deacon. And so deacon literally means servant in Greek. 
They, they established this office of deacon in order to handle the growing complexities of a growing church. This is not the, the leader saying, hey, we're growing too fast and, and only preaching is important. That's not what they're saying. It's them saying the preaching is really important. God has called us to this ministry of teaching and preaching. Uh, meeting the practical needs of people is also very important, and he's called us to do those things. But who are we to neglect our calling to preach? Therefore, there's that therefore, we'll keep teaching, and let's find some godly people. Remember, he says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So it's kind of a high bar who can handle this important work that needs to be done. And then the response to the leaders is, uh, it, it wasn't received as, you're just pawning off work on us that you don't want to do. That's not what's happening. Scripture tells us in verse 5 of chapter 6 there that it pleased them. Th these people felt empowered in being able to do this. They were genuinely excited to set people over these practical responsibilities for the good of the whole body. So we pull that all the way back. It sounds a lot like what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 12, does it not? There's an appointment of people to oversee the logistical and the practical challenges of a growing community. Living in community with God's people can be logistically complex. There's literally more mouths to feed when the church grows. There's more expenses to manage. There's more feet to wash. There's more hearts to encourage. There's more souls to shepherd. And when God's people run into the real problems of being a growing body of believers, what we ought not do is to just scale back and make it easier for ourselves, at least not as a, as a first default action, even though it may feel tempting to do so, since it is the simplest and the easiest solution. I think the reason we ought not do this, not scale back as a default, is because it's possible that the solution to the problem is right here within the body. Now, it may mean more work, it may mean adding more complexity, but the solution might be right here. So I hope what you hear is if you are a Christian, your church body needs you. It needs you. It needs your practical skills and your expertise. We as a church need your wisdom. We need your compassionate heart and your ability to comfort those who are hurting and to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We need some type A, Nehemiah-esque, hyper-attention and love of details people to come and to serve and to help. We need your strong backs. We need your willing hands. We need people who aren't terrified of heights to be able to climb up and get this garland off at the end of Christmas because Jake and I aren't going to do that. That was really scary. <laughs> I'll do it if I have to, but I would love to not have to do it. We need people who love kids, who are willing to sacrifice their time to teach our children the gospel downstairs. There are many, many, many ways to serve at Mercy House. It's possible that our church needs you in places that you can only see. So if you're sitting here and you're like, why does this church have X, Y, and Z? It probably is because we haven't thought about it. And it would be awesome if you were able to contribute that. Let me give you some recent examples, because this is not like a fairy tale, mythical thing. This really does happen. Here are a few examples. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but our heat is working now. It's cozy and warm in here. It wasn't this fall. And that's because the whole system was broken. 
And uh, I didn't know that. We didn't know how it was broken. Like, it only got up to 60 degrees, which is arguably warm in some context. It wasn't warm enough. I didn't know where to even look to fix the problem. And one Sunday, um, Josh Sprague, he comes up to me, and he says, hey, thanks for preaching. By the way, I was going to the men's bathroom, and I noticed the door to the boiler room is open. Is everything okay? And I said, nope, our heat doesn't work. He said, cool. Hey, Ben, Senadella, and I uh, do HVAC. Do you mind if I just stop by and take a peek at it for you? And I said, no, not at all. So meanwhile, we had received a quote for fixing it. It cost like tens of thousands of dollars. And Ben and Josh stopped by, I think it was the next morning, on Monday morning. They identified the problem. They went and got the parts. They fixed it all and said, hey, God bless you guys. And here we are, warm. So like, thank you, Josh and Ben. Like, what a blessing from God in answer to prayers. Yeah, <laughs> praise God. Not Here's the crazy thing, not just to serve a need, but to help our church identify that need to begin with. We had no idea where to look or what to fix. Here's another example. This is for you ladies. Have you noticed that your bathroom downstairs is nicer? It's, I haven't seen it, and I didn't know what it looked like before, but I've heard that it is nicer. A couple of weeks ago, I go into the basement, on, I think it was Tuesday morning, the lights were all on. I thought we were being robbed again. And as I was investigating around, I found an older woman and a baby who were both just as startled as I was. And it turns out it was little Summer, who I did know, and her, and her grandmother, who I had not yet met yet. And you know those moments where you want to know what someone is doing, but you can't think of a nice way to say it? Like, you can't say, like, what are you doing here? Uh, and I, I didn't say that, but it turns out that uh, Amy was painting and remodeling the bathroom down there. So thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amy's mom and Summer, for dedicating your time, blessing our community, and identifying the needs and meeting it. I could go on and on, and I will for a little bit here. When, when J.D., our previous worship leader, left, God bless him, uh, we had a big hole to fill, and we didn't know what to do. And so what we did was we gathered some people together who had helped with worship in the past, and not one, but four talented and gifted musicians stepped up to lead our church in worship. They've been rotating through. So Cindy, Jimmy, Avi, and Julia, thank you guys for stepping up to serve and meet this need. Thank you that we don't have to sing along to a YouTube worship song, uh, but we actually have live music, and it's great. One of the cool things about it, what's even more than that, is that Cindy, Jimmy, Avi, and Julia have been able to incorporate more people into worship than have ever participated before. So uh, just real quick, if this year you participate in worship at Mercy House for the first time, can you raise your hand? Don't be shy. Really, really high up. If you participated, if you sang, if real high. There's a lot, and there's a bunch of hands in the back, too. Megan, yeah, okay. Not the first time, but they were literally, Sundays I would come around the, 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 like I would enter into the building, I'd come around the corner, and there'd be some person I'd never seen before playing drums. And I was like, that's awesome, cool. Thank you, God, for drummers. Thank you guys for, thank you all for serving, for helping lead our church family in worshiping and celebrating and praising God for all that he is and all that he has done. Speaking of deacons from Acts 6, Luke Showalter, who actually happened to have his uh, birthday on Friday, we celebrated it yesterday, Luke has been appointed as deacon to oversee the maintenance and care of this building and this parish. 
uh, that parish and this building, and talk about like a marrying of gifts and calling with the very practical needs of a church. He, he's overseen uh, pretty much a complete renovation and painting of the apartments next door. He, he helps make sure that we're all up to code and the town doesn't shut down this building. He's not doing this alone. He's, he's coordinating lots of people with lots of different gifts. Luke is a civil engineer by trade. He's donating his time to design a whole new drainage system for the front so our bathrooms don't back up into the toilets. I have no idea how that works, but I'm so glad that he does. So Luke, thank you for serving faithfully and sacrificially. I'd be really hard-pressed not to mention Cindy. Is Cindy here? I think I saw her peeking in the back. Yeah, she's like, hey, Cindy who, in addition to serving as one of the worship leaders, is, is, has literally been appointed to oversee our storerooms and contributions. She's our treasurer, so she makes sure that our bills are paid and that our books are balanced and that our budget is formalized and formatted and that we as a church are being good stewards of our resources. So thank you, Cindy, for serving faithfully and sacrificially. I could literally keep going, Okay. People who have helped out with AV and making sure that we have sound and slides on a Sunday morning. Those who have served downstairs with our children to make sure that the next generation is being raised to know the gospel and doing so with compassion and love for our children. Those who have greeted people at the door. Those who have read scripture, even though at, 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 at sometimes it's really scary to pray or to read scripture in front of people, but the people have been able to do that. Those who serve communion at the front. Those who stay after and help clean up the space. Those who come early to help prepare the space. Those who came on all of our work days to paint, to rake, to demolish, to build those who uh, came to decorate this space and make it look beautiful, those who have cooked meals for events, those who have baked cookies and muffins for hospitality downstairs, those who have watched our children on Wednesday nights, everyone who has been able to host people into their homes, if you have served in any capacity, I want to thank you, I want to thank you, and I want you to know three things, okay? Number one, you are appreciated. You're appreciated, maybe not perfectly, but on behalf of our community, I want to thank you for serving. Truly, you are a blessing, and it's not lost on us, even when we're not great at communicating how thankful and blessed we are. Thank you. So you are appreciated. Number two, you are fulfilling what God has intended for the people of God to do as you are living as the church of God. When you serve, regardless of how simple or practical it might seem, you are living as God would want you to live, using your gifts that he's given you to, in order to bless others and to bless him as well. And that's why these little scenes are given, uh, given to us in the Bible, right? We need to remember that God's word is a means by which he has chosen to reveal himself to us, his heart for us, and his intentions to us. In your service, you are fulfilling what God has intended for his people. And number three, you are seen. You are seen. It might not be by me. It might not be by other members of the church, but you are seen by God himself. It, it might feel like you are unappreciated and maybe even taken advantage of as, as you work behind the scenes and no one is able to acknowledge your work, but there is no act of service there is no offering of sacrifice that goes unseen by our Father who sees all. And He delights in your faithfulness. He loves it. He rejoices over you. And He will bless you. 
Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24, you may have heard this before, says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In your service to the church, you are serving Jesus himself. That's pretty awesome. So thank you for being faithful in doing so. This is why we want to honor our volunteers this afternoon at our volunteer appreciation lunch after the service. So please, if you've done anything to serve, doesn't matter how little or how great, we want to invite you to our Chipotle catered lunch. Yeah. It just got real afterwards. Yeah. May this encourage you all. We are doing it as God's people. We're, we're growing in it. Just like Israel is dusting off some cobwebs, they're, they're kind of setting things in motion once again. I'm encouraged by seeing a very gradual but very steady increase of people who are shifting from being merely an attender. And listen, if you're just attending, like, we're glad you're here. So I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but there are those who are attending who are shifting into becoming members of our community, members who are willing to serve, to meet the practical needs of a large body of believers. So be encouraged. Be encouraged if you haven't served. This is certainly not meant to be a guilt trip. Guilt is only good for bringing shame, uh, for encouraging legalism, and driving people away from the church. So those are three things we are not in the business of here at Mercy House. So I hope you feel a warm invitation to dig in alongside others around you. And perhaps with some holy conviction to be able to use your gifts that God has given you to serve the needs of our growing church. So if you don't know how, you can fill out one of the cards right in the chair in front of you. You can drop it in the basket as it goes around later. You can also become a member, and you can hear more of the practical needs that we do have as a church. Well, what we see in these last chapters of Nehemiah are God's people living in the most ideal state. Um, they have a reverence for God's word. There's a heart of thankfulness for God's faithfulness. They have sincere hearts of repentance and prayer. They're living in renewed covenant with God and one another. They have a willingness to be a part of their community. And they experience regular, joyful, and loud celebration of God. And here, people are participating in the work of God. But that's not all we see. We see specific mention of the Levites and priests and Israel's interaction with them. Look again at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. If you remember, the priests and the Levites were those who were designated to devote themselves to the service of God's people and the teaching of God's word and the shepherding of God's people, interceding on behalf of God's people, advocating to the Lord on behalf of God's people. These weren't volunteers, but they had committed themselves. They had devoted their careers, their vocation to the service of God and his people. The equivalent of these today would be your elders or pastors, that's the same word, elders and pastors, and your staff, your full-time staff. But first, I, I want to talk about the elders for just a minute. So Steve, Jake, and Garrett. 
Um, I've had the pleasure and joy of, of working with these men for the, for the past couple of years, um, and it has been some of the hardest work I have ever done, but it's also produced some of the deepest fellowship and friendship I've ever experienced. I know for a fact that these men don't do it for praise or glory or something to put on their resume or CVs, like it wouldn't fit on there, uh, to be quite honest, but their faithfulness to the Lord and their care for the church has brought me personally so much encouragement in my walk with the Lord and what he's called me to do. Each of these men have carried heavy burdens, and that's in addition to their regular burdens. So these guys don't sit in coffee shops all day like I do. Steve is a CPA and partner at a big accounting firm. Jake is a, a wicked smart economics professor at Amherst College. Garrett, I think he basically runs Mass DOT, so like all the roads that you drive on in Massachusetts. That's Garrett. They all have families, too, with lots of children. They're trying to survive. They're trying to read God's word and to walk obediently and to love God and their neighbors. And it's on top of all of that that they have voluntarily taken on this part-time job of shepherding the souls of men and women and children in this community. It's times like these, in passages of Scripture like this, where we must see the significance of people that God has provided for our good in positions of spiritual leadership. They should not be taken for granted. But like Israel, in verse 44 we should rejoice over them. They are not perfect. They are human like the rest of us. They're flawed. They're prone to the same temptations and the challenges of living life in the flesh on this side of eternity. But God has called them to this work. They have faithfully responded to his call. And we as a church, as a church have acknowledged and affirmed this calling. And Mercy House, that all is a beautiful and miraculous provision by God. This is a greater provision than millions of dollars. These are people who have dedicated their lives. And it's God showing us that he sees us, he knows us, he cares for us, enough to provide us with human under-shepherds who are called to lay down their lives for our good. So rejoice over them, Mercy House. Thank them Bless them, encourage them. They don't do it for that, but God's people support those who minister to them. That's what we see here in chapter 12. So let's follow suit with Israel and take time this season to honor and bless our elders. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Garrett. Garrett. And thank you, Jake. Is Jake not here? Send our regards to Jake. Thank you, guys for serving humbly and obediently in very difficult times. God bless you guys. The last people I want to talk about this morning, those whose role and situation I think is most like the priests and the Levites are our paid staff, Megan, V, who's downstairs serving, Alden, and Noreen. They, they have invested all of themselves into serving God and you here at Mercy House. They have sacrificed much, willingly, joyfully, for the sake of God's kingdom being built here in Amherst. Each of these people could easily be doing something else right now. You need to know that. Probably making a lot more money and having more of an apparent impact out there. So Megan is one of the most gifted administrators I've ever met. She could easily direct a church 10 times the size of ours. 
V is one of the most gifted evangelists I know. I remember during COVID, V was leading random people to Christ over Zoom at 2 a.m. That was like her COVID hobby. We're like, what'd you do yesterday? She's like, I was uh, telling people about Jesus online in like different countries. V would make an incredible impact for Jesus wherever you popped her down. And she's incredibly gifted and talented. Alden is probably the biggest Bible nerd I know. Like he could be translating the Bible in some country I can't pronounce right now. Noreen is one of the most caring people I know. She has the heart of a shepherd, and she would and probably will flourish in social work. That's what she's in school for right now. All of them are some of the hardest working people I have ever met, and some of the most faithful people that I know today. They're not without their flaws. They're not perfect, but man, they are my dream team to do ministry with. They have carried me, they have encouraged me, they have loved me, they have supported me, they've, they, they've cared for me, they've laughed with me, we've cried, we've celebrated, we've mourned. This passage connected with my heart because of them, because Lord knows I rejoice over them. So Megan, V, Alden, Noreen is in the back somewhere serving. Thank you guys. Thank you for serving your church. Thank you for serving me and my family and may you feel appreciated, loved, seen, taken care of by our church family, but ultimately by our Father in heaven. It's very uncomfortable for them, I know. Mercy House, rejoice over your staff. Rejoice and serve alongside them and support them. Just like Israel rejoiced over and served alongside and supported their priests and their Levites. You could support them by paying them. So just like the Levites and, and uh, just like the Levites, like your tithes and your contributions pay their salaries. So this is one way that Israel supported their priests and Levites and honored their sacrifice by providing for their needs. You can also support them by praying for them and encouraging them. This work is exhausting. Those in ministry are prone to weariness and discouragement. So pray for their hearts and their minds to be guarded and to be strengthened. And if they, if they have blessed you, then build them up. Let them know that. You can support them by being their friends. They're people. They are not just ministry machines. V loves traveling and cooking. Megan loves films and good stories. Noreen loves coffee, like good coffee. Alden loves books. The older, the mustier, the better. The priests and the Levites weren't just employees of Israel. They were brothers and sisters. So rejoice over these ministers of the gospel, those who minister to your needs. The, the unpaid volunteers in the room, the commissioned deacons and the elders, your paid staff, and don't neglect them. Israel had a really good run in doing this. So you look at these final verses in 46 and 47. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Israel had a beautiful legacy of supporting those who ministered to their needs. The narrator is reminding us in these verses that long ago, there were those who led worship and served in the same capacities. 
And, and they're also letting us know that Israel has continued this legacy of supporting them joyfully since the days of Zerubbabel when the temple was first rebuilt in the book of Ezra. Which is, just as a side note, that is crazy that people would commit themselves to sacrificial financial support during a time of great tumult and economic uncertainty and war. They didn't even have a home. They were, they were exiles, but they still committed themselves to supporting their people. They did it. And they recommit themselves to it back in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. They, they, when they reestablished their covenant with the Lord, look at what they said. This is in chapter 10, verse 39. It should be on your screens. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This was really important to God's people. And so my exhortation, my strong encouragement to you is to do what Israel had committed themselves together to do, to not neglect the house of the Lord. Mercy House, do not neglect your brothers and your sisters. Lean in, lower your shoulder to the burdens, and participate in serving the body. But also rejoice over those who serve, celebrate them, encourage them, support them. This is probably the main reason why we always encourage you to give as an act of worship to God. And it is worshipful to invest your resources as God commands us to do, specifically to financially support the work and the lives of some of your brothers and sisters, but also to support the other ministries and the practical expenses which bless all of your brothers and your sisters here in this house. It's only getting colder, and that gas bill is only going to grow. And so we encourage you, if nothing else, don't neglect the house of the Lord this winter. The reality, though, is that we will likely forget to support our brothers and sisters. We will likely neglect the house of the Lord. The nation of Israel does. For as good as their track record was, they still failed in this area. Even after recommitting themselves and rededicating themselves to the task and promising that they specifically would not neglect the house of the Lord. Here's a preview of the Christmas morning text that we're going to go through. We're we're finishing the final sermon of our sermon series on Christmas Day. Nehemiah will go back to Persia in chapter 13 to give a report uh, uh, to the king of Persia about how everything went. And then when he comes back to Jerusalem, this is what he finds, one of the things that he finds. This is chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. These Levites, who lived off the tithes and offerings, as Israel is experiencing their inevitable spiritual collapse in chapter 13, we're going to talk about this on Christmas, after this mountaintop ride for the first 12 chapters of the book, they stop tithing. They stop supporting their ministers, their brothers and their sisters. They neglect the house of the Lord. It got so bad that people who worked in the temple had to abandon their posts and go work in the fields in order to pay and have food on their tables. The, the reason I think that this is included in Scripture 
for us is, in part, is it is a reminder. It's a reminder that if you are a Christian and you are part of God's family, your contribution matters. Even though it may seem like you're just one person in a huge community. So what does that matter if you don't serve, if you don't support your brothers and your sisters? That maybe there's plenty of support and resources kind of floating around out there. Like, what's my hour or what's my dollar going to do to help support this church? But that's not the heart of those who have been transformed by the gospel. The Christian doesn't ask, is it necessary for me to contribute my time and my talents and my treasure? And if so, how much? What we ought to be doing is being joyfully excited about the ways that we can contribute. Why? Because that kind of makes the church seem really needy, kind of a drain on resources. But we give of our time, of our talents, of our treasure, because when we have been affected by God's grace, it transforms us to be gracious. As we experience God's great generosity toward us, then we are compelled to be similarly generous. When we experience the care and love of God, it drives us to want to be like our Father and to seek ways to care for and love others as well. When we see and understand that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, this is Mark 10, verse 45, and to give, Jesus didn't give just a few hours of his time a week or just 10% of his income. He gave 100% of every ounce of who he was and even his very life as an act of love and service toward all of you and toward me. And when we hear that, when we know that, when we experience that, how can we not be inspired, even joyfully obligated to do the same for our brothers and our sisters? We love because He first loved us. That's 1 John 4.19. We give because He first gave to us. God's people don't neglect one another because God doesn't neglect us. God saw us in our moment of greatest need. He saw us poor and destitute, drowning in our own sin and our own shame. And, and even when we were neglected, even when we experienced abandonment, even when we felt unappreciated, unseen, unloved, the whole Bible from Genesis 3 verse 14 all the way to the end is God making sure that, that it would not be our ultimate fate to be abandoned. It's the story of God making it possible for us to be His people, to be forever seen, to be forever loved, to be forever provided for, forever delighted in, all at a great cost to himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Have you ever wondered why God establishes his covenant with us through a meal? He could have done anything. He could have sung a song. He could have danced a dance. He could have done like a handshake or did like a creed that we repeat. But he establishes it in a basic meal. And there are many reasons for this, but one of them is to remind us every time you eat and drink that God sees you, he sees your practical need to eat and drink, and he fulfills it. 
It doesn't mean that you won't ever go hungry. But this is a reminder that Jesus' death and his resurrection satisfies and fulfills a need in you that is greater than your need for food and drink. And so this morning, as we take communion, remember that God will never neglect you. He hasn't, and he won't. God does not neglect his people, and he doesn't neglect his church. That promise that Israel made in chapter 10, uh, though failed by his people, God does fulfill it. God says, I will not neglect the house of the Lord, my house. Out of this meditation, I encourage you to consider how you can be more like Christ, how you can contribute to his kingdom, how you can serve him with your gifts and your experiences and your talents, and how you can support God's people within God's house. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious provider. You care for all of our needs, needs that are seen, uh, needs that are unseen, God. You hold creation together, something that we don't even acknowledge often, that the air in our lungs, our lungs being able to breathe, our hearts being able to beat, are all happening because of your gracious, merciful goodness toward us. God, I pray that as we reflect on your goodness and your provision, that that would drive us, Lord, to want to lean in to your body. Thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that's a promise for each of us as individuals, but also for your kingdom, God. And so we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, help us as a growing community learn how to handle logistics and practical challenges Lord, we see that you are a God who cares about those things and who is glorified when people use their gifts to overcome these challenges. Help us to impact many people, God. You tell us to multiply and to subdue the earth, and we know that at the end of time, we're going to end up all together as one giant, massive kingdom. And so help us, Lord, learn how to do that here and now in our community, God. Help us to see ways where we can serve. Help us to love and support one another. And in that process, help us to learn more about you, to grow deeper in relationship with you as we grow closer in relationship with our brothers and sisters here. Lord, only you can do this. Only you can stir the hearts of your people to sacrifice. And we are stirred by your sacrifice ultimately. And we thank you for that, God. Lord, we need you in this season. We thank you that you give us our greatest source of joy, and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.